messenger to speak into the marriages and the future marriages of Shannon Oaks Church. Our guest this morning has been husband to Kristen for almost 17 years, is the dad to four amazing young men, and his fingerprints are spreading around the globe on a mission to see couples experience firsthand the hope, the redemption, and the victory of Jesus Christ in the context of marriage. He's on staff at Watermark Church over in Dallas where he and his team of leaders are serving newly engaged couples uh, to equip them for the journey that's ahead, to establish newlyweds in their covenant relationship, and to make an impact on generations to come by empowering marriage mentors to make a difference for the kingdom in the home. This morning, I want you to get ready to receive the blessing for all it's worth that God intended this morning to be for your family and for our church. Shannon Oaks, would you join me in issuing a cool, refreshing welcome to our guest speaker this morning, Mr. Scott Kadersha. Man, that was very, very kind. Thank you very much. I, I just got braces a couple months ago, and the other adults blessed with that. Yes, it's awesome, said no one ever. And uh, I'm still getting used to it, and so I need to have my water nearby in case my braces stick to my teeth. It's a very uncomfortable, uh, stick to my lips, actually, not that hopefully they stick to my teeth if you've had braces. Hey, so uh, pleasure to be here with you this morning. Uh, my son Lincoln is up here in the front row, made the road trip with me. We've had a great, uh, great evening here in, in Sulphur Springs. And uh, as Eric said, married since 2001. I've been on staff at Watermark since 2006 and been working with marriages the whole time. I'm a very self-proclaimed marriage nerd. I think about marriage all of the time. So my own marriage, how to lead pre-marriage, newly marrieds, and rich, restore couples all over the spectrum. I remember reading a passage a while ago that really impacted me. It's, it's Proverbs 12:4. It says, a wife of noble character is her husband's crown, but a disgraceful wife is like decay or rottenness in his bones. And so I've really been a part of helping to prevent people from experiencing decay and rottenness in their bones. It's a privilege to be here with you this morning. Thank you for the invitation, Eric, and thanks for the, the great welcome and community you've been this morning. Uh, this is not going to be a traditional sermon like I typically do, typically, and I don't preach a ton. I more teach on a weekly basis at a marriage ministry, but a Sunday morning, I don't do this a lot, but when I do... I typically will pick one passage and just kind of work my way through it, teach three uh, points out of it, something like that. This is going to be a little bit more uh, of unveiling the four things that God is really doing in my own marriage. And as I've thought through these, and I think about marriage all the time, as I mentioned, uh, these are things that I'm working that I, on that I think every single couple needs to be working on in their marriage. And so it's going to be a little bit more of a topical. Here's four passages of Scripture that have really informed ways that I want to work on my own marriage. A, a couple words for you in the beginning. If you're married, you better do these things. If you are uh, engaged or dating someone and the person that you're dating is not willing to do them, I would get out as quickly as possible. You do not want to sign up for marriage with someone who's not willing to apply what God's Word says. If you are somebody who desires to get married in the future, 
And so maybe you're a student or youth or you're a kid, you, you've got you know, days ahead of you and you've got, or you're single and you want to get married, pay attention. Because you want to marry somebody who wants to do these things and is willing to do them. And if you're somebody who is single again, never wants to get married, widowed, whatever it might be, I guarantee that you know people who want to get married. And so your job is to help them make sure that they do these things. So before I uh, just very um, candidly uh, just tell you what it's like as a marriage pastor, and I know every single one of you grows up wanting to be a marriage pastor, you know, as either want to be a doctor, fireman, baseball player, or marriage pastor. I'm living the dream. I know that's exactly what every other person, no, no one has ever wanted to grow up married wanted to be a marriage pastor. But, uh, but this is the calling that God has in my life, and I get to do. And so, you know, if I lead a big marriage ministry in a big church in Dallas, Scott must have everything together. He must have the perfect marriage. Well, let me uh, just remove any hint that my marriage is perfect. And I'm going to go back a little bit in time. I can give you four million examples of when I've fallen short, but maybe my favorite goes back to the year 2004. So we got married in 2001 in uh, May 26, 2004, my wife gave birth to our twin boys, who are 14 now, and, uh, and that was the worst season of our life. Okay, we should be excited. We've got twins, we've got babies, and, uh, and it was incredibly, incredibly difficult. And so one of them was a, a colicky baby. I don't know if any of you have been a colicky baby, had a colicky baby. A colicky baby cries all the time. Can I get an amen? Anyone had one of those? Yeah. So whether you feed them, whether you rock them, whether they're trying to go to bed, it doesn't matter what you do, this, these kids cry. And so one of the twins named Drew was a colicky child, screamed all the time, and I mean, he just would look miserable, couldn't hold any food down. If you've seen the Lord of the Rings movies, um, you know, Gollum, like with a few like strings of hair, that's what this child looked like. And miserable. Now he's 14 and just a stud. He's a great kid. But back then he was, he wasn't the most attractive baby ever. And he was really difficult. We have no recollection of his twin brother, Duncan, whatsoever, because Drew had got all of our attention. And so one night, you know, it's, they're born in May. Uh, at that time, I was in seminary full-time. I was working part-time as a physical therapist. But Kristen was the main, you know, breadwinner in the family. When she had the twins, she wasn't bringing in the income anymore. She had a new, a better, uh, much lower-paying job, you know, raising her kids. And so, um, so we went from doing well financially to having nothing financially, very, you know, in a stressful time. I was in seminary working at the church for like a dime an hour, uh, going to seminary, and we've got, these, we've got these twin babies, and one of them screaming all the time. Very difficult season in our life, and, and I remember so many of the details. And one day, like, no idea why we started fighting, but we just get into an argument with one another. And this was not, this was the argument to end all arguments for Scott and Kristen. This was for the first time and only time I could really remember when things got really, really personal. It wasn't like we were just mad at each other, this, or mad at kind of the world, or mad at, you know, somebody else. We were mad with one another. And we started kind of arguing and, you know, goes back and forth. And, and then it becomes not so gentle, you know, arguing. Now we're screaming and yelling at each other. I'm using four-letter words, which, um, like, I was like, I wasn't a full-time pastor, so it was okay. Not okay. Okay, I was uh, a follower of Christ and, and just was not honoring God, not honoring my wife. And we're yelling and screaming back and forth. 
And I remember one time, it just got so mad. I was so frustrated. We had this window that went through from our family room into the kitchen. And I remember banging my hands on this counter over and over going, my life is over. My life is over. My life is over. Like 15, 20, 25 times in a row. I have no, many, no idea, but I was screaming and yelling. And in that moment, it wasn't like I had this revelation like, Scott, you're being a really selfish husband right now. But as I look back, I realize that's, that's when I realized that I, I've got a very imperfect walk with Jesus and a very imperfect marriage. Okay, my wife has not slept in months. My poor child is screaming and can't get nutrition and, and is miserable, and it's all about me. And so that was 14 years ago, but that has really stuck with me as a reminder that I, I am as broken as they come. I need Jesus just as much as anyone else, and I need Jesus to lead and guide my marriage. And so as I lead in marriage ministry, I'm consistently reminded of my brokenness and our brokenness in our marriage and my need for Christ. And so uh, I, that's largely what I want to speak out of today is how we need Jesus desperately in our relationships with one another and specifically within marriage. And I remember a few years prior, we got married. It was September 15th, 2001, four days after 9-11. And uh, if you can throw those wedding vows up there very quickly. These are pretty traditional wedding vows, the ones that we say to one another. I, Scott, take you, Kristen, as my wedded wife to have and to hold from this day forward. For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness or in health. To love and to cherish till death do us part. For as long as we both shall live. And so we've all heard those. We know what they mean. It's, it's often easy to be uh, in the middle of it and to be excited about when things are better and richer in health. But what happens when things are poorer and you're sick and you're worse? My stepdad just passed away about a year ago from a five-year, seven-year battle with Alzheimer's. And the way that my mom cared for him in both the good times and the bad times. She had to wipe his bottom and clean up after him and, and just do all these things that you pretty much sign up for when you agree to marry somebody else. It's easy in the good times. It's hard in the bad times. But as I looked at those vows, I looked at a word that I don't often uh, think about. It's that word cherish. And so I thought I agreed and I promised that I was going to cherish Kristen Kadersha, but I have no idea what that really meant. And so I spent a good chunk of time thinking through what I need to do to help better cherish my wife. And so what I'm going to share with you very quickly this morning is four ways that I can better cherish my spouse and ways that you can cherish your spouse as well. And so as I thought through, I read a, a great book by this guy named Gary Thomas called Cherish, and I started to think through, what does it look like for me to better cherish my spouse? What would it look like for you to better cherish your spouse? What would it look like for you to want to marry somebody who will cherish you and love you in addition to all the other things that you commit to? And so I thought through, what does it look like to cherish Kristen? It means that I, I actually listen to her. Okay, it means I, I put my phone down and the priority does not become scores or the latest news of where LeBron James is signing or who wins a World Cup game or a anything like that. It becomes more, what does it look like to better pay attention to my wife? And I thought through, what would it look like for me to uh, just to, to light up when I see her, when I come home from work? You know, maybe I, I give her a, a, a big hug and rub her back and I don't... Uh, 
expect a hug later that night when we go to bed. I just do it kind of selflessly because I'm putting her needs before my own. Or it might look like I just pay attention to her like she is the only woman in the world. Okay, I think back to Adam and Eve when Adam and Eve are in the garden and there's nothing that competes with her. There's no body image comparison. There's no sports center. There's no uh, anything that would tempt him or pull him away. I thought, what would it look like if I loved my wife in that kind of way? What would it look like if I focused on the things about her that are amazing rather than the things that frustrate me from time to time? I said, I need to work on my marriage. If I'm going to lead others well, if I'm going to be a follower of Christ, if I'm going to raise four boys who I want to have a radically different picture of marriage, I need to do things radically different in my marriage. And so I got to this point about a year ago, and I said, we're doing pretty well. I'd give us a good B-plus in our marriage, but I said, I don't want a B-plus. I want an A-plus in the way that I love my wife. I vowed and promised to love and cherish her in better or worse, richer or poorer, sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part. And so very quickly, there are all those things I could do. These are the four things that I promise to do that I think every single one of us needs to do in our marriage. And so the first one is to deal with our selfishness. Now, this is not the time, you know, ladies, when you elbow your husband uh, or vice versa. This is when you need to, as we say at Watermark often, draw a circle around ourselves and work on everyone inside of the circle. See, every single one of us is selfish. It's part of the sinful nature that we are born with. It's part of the, uh, our patterns every single day. And so selfishness looks different for every single one of us. But essentially, here's what we read about selfishness in God's word. It's James 4, 1 through 3. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions... And passions are really your selfish desires. They're at war within you. You desire you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Life becomes all about me. I don't know if there's any Toby Keith fans in the room, but, I, you know, that song, I want to talk about me, I want to talk about I, I want to talk about number one, oh, my, me, my, what I think, what I want, what I like, what I want, want to see, I can't remember all the words, but, but life is all about us. If we want to think about our selfish desires, and selfishness is really the exact opposite of the essence of marriage. God did not design us to be selfish, but to be selfless, to give, not just to take. But we all have these tendencies just to think about ourselves. And so my biggest selfishness uh, comes in, in what I eat. I like to put my desires for food and comfort and satisfaction in food. I'm very selfish in the way I eat. In fact, I always laugh. These jeans I'm wearing, I had some... Uh, Needed some new jeans. <clears throat> a couple. Actually, let me get a drink really quick. I don't like to talk about my eating problems, but I'm going to. And so, needed some new jeans. <clears throat> the holes were worn out, and the knees not like the the cool kind that you buy that way in advance. These are just they were really old, and and one of them didn't fit me. And so my wife went to the went to Old Navy because they've got you know cheap jeans. And so she got me a pair of jeans and. 
puts them down on the bed. I get home from work one day, and I look at them, and in the back, they've got the word ample written in the, uh, in the seam. <laughs> and, and then the next thing I see is that they're stretched to fit. And so I thanked my wife for getting me jeans for pregnant men. And so I'm actually wearing those <laughs> jeans right now. Uh, but my selfishness comes out often in just, just wanting comfort and food. Okay, some of you it might come in looking at pornography. Some of you might, uh, you know, experience this. You don't have money, but you shop all the time. Some of you give in to temptations, abuse, addictions, overeating, whatever it might be. Some of you, uh, you hear that baby crying at 2 a.m., but you act like you're asleep because you don't want to get that baby up. And so selfishness is all over our lives. Selfishness comes out in our bedtime routine every single night so our uh, twins are 14 now and an 11 year old and a nine year old and and every single night they have a routine you know they go to bed they brush your teeth they go to bed at a certain time and 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 I'm like let's just can we please get them through bedtime quickly yes I don't want to be up for four hours and every single night it's the same battle what I gotta brush my teeth I'm like yes Every day, kids, you brush your teeth in the morning and at night. What? I've got to go to bed now? I'm like, yes. Every human beings go to bed. It's what we do. But it's this battle consistently. And I just don't want any part of it. I've got more important things to do than to go through the same battle every single day. So every night I'm reminded of my selfishness. When I watch the way that my wife so selflessly takes time to put the kids to bed and to pray with them and to talk with them, and, and it challenges me like crazy to be reminded that this life is not about me. It's about serving others and about being selfless. And so God is working on me. I'm, I'm trying to deal with, uh, with a bedtime routine, and I'm working on getting healthier. And, you know, I've, I've uh, dropped some weight, and I'm eating better, except I ate terrible last night at Arturo's. That was like some of the best pizza ever. And, and, but I am really am trying to work on my selfishness. And so what is it for you? Okay, what is it in your life that you think about? And again, don't think about where your spouse is selfish. Where are you selfish? And, you know, and, and I'll tell you, if you want to get married someday and you're selfish, things will not go well for you in your marriage if you are selfish. We've got to address our selfishness. And so the good thing is we're not left on our own. We can look at the example of God's word we see in James 4, 6 through 10, right after that passage I just shared about selfishness. We see how we're called to be humble, to draw near to God. We see in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, maybe the greatest written example of what it means to be selfless. We see that God, even though he was God, emptied himself and uh, became human. He put our needs before his own. And so if we're going to be a selfless spouse, we look at the example of our Savior, Jesus Christ. The second thing that I decided I need to do is that I need to live with my wife in an understanding way. So 1 Peter 3, 7 says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. That just means typically she's the weaker spouse physically since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So there's this direct connection there that Peter says, husband, if you don't live with your wife in an understanding way, your prayers are going to be hindered. In other words, if you are not loving her, your relationship with the Lord is going to be blocked somehow. 
And I think that passage works both ways. Ladies, if you don't live with your husband in an understanding way, it's going to affect your walk spiritually. And so I, as I looked at that passage and I teach that one all the time, I said, I need to do a better job of being a student of my spouse. I need to live with her in an understanding way. There are some weird things about my wife. And she would say there are some weirder things about her husband. She keeps everything, everything. And I want to throw everything away. A great example of that is, is her inbox. She has about 15,000 emails in her inbox. I have probably around 10. And, and I just have to go. I just trust the Lord with her that he's going to deal with that. She likes things uh, clean. I like things neat. Uh, we're very different personality-wise. I want to go, go, go. She wants to be with our family and be a little bit more, um, she's a little more introverted. And so there's these things about one another that we consistently have to learn how to deal with our differences. My friends, Alan and Amanda, I love the way they uh, deal with their differences. She is uh, the, I, I don't like gender stereotypes typically where, you know, all women are this way, all men are this way. But she is the epitome of the emotional female. And so she is begging and pleading with her husband one day. And she says, Alan, you don't understand me. I am a delicate flower. And, and he says, delicate flower? What am I? You are a lawnmower <laughs> that destroys delicate flowers. And so that, that is not what, actually, I'm the, I'm the much more emotional one in our marriage. Kristen is much more stable. Uh, but, but whatever it is with you and your spouse where you are different, you need to learn to study them, spend time with them, ask questions. We love going on date nights with one another. Okay, we leave our kids at home. We go somewhere fun, and we just we leave our phones, and we just actually engage with one another. We try every day to get some time in the midst of the chaos, and our lives have never been busier or more filled with chaos, but we try to make time every single day to make sure that we know what's going on with one another, to live with each other in an understanding way. Third is that we want to make our marriage our message. It's so very similar to what Jonathan shared in worship. You know, there's, a, there's something about us that the world is looking at us. And, and I realized this kind of recently that, or, you know, last year or so that that there's a great opportunity with my marriage to make a difference in what others see. I don't come from a Christian family, and so my family was headed this way, and then God intersected my life, and I became a follower of Christ. In 1998, now I have four boys, and I get to impact which direction they go. We live in a neighborhood. Our kids go to public school. We, our kids play on sports teams. There's all kinds of opportunities to not just talk about our marriage, but for others to see what our marriages look like. And so what do others see when they look at your marriage? Because your marriage communicates something, whether you realize it or not. And I realized this more than ever last year. And so I've looked at a couple pictures online of couples. And so, you know, there's this couple that just looks like there's great contempt between them, kind of back-to-back, -back, not dealing with one another. There's the next couple that, you know, just has a ton of fun jumping on the bed. I have a uh, just that that's what kind of what I want is to have fun. There's the couple who argues. And so every single day is like a battle. There's, uh, you know, couples that are just clearly young and in love that, man, that guy's got some serious ups. I always think that. 
there's couples that are just disengaged, right? I mean, that, that might be you. Every single day you coexist. You're not going to get divorced, but you're disengaged. And she's watching TV. And like always, the guy is praying for the marriage while she is checked out. I mean, that's always how things go, right? Said no one ever, okay? And then uh, and then just silly and fun. Okay, so what, what does your marriage communicate? And I'm thinking of Matthew 5, 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but the salt has lost its taste. How shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. We've all heard every time we hear a familiar passage, it's easy to check out. I just want you to, to make sure that you're engaged. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. We don't take a light. We don't put a lamp over it and cover it and prevent. We want the world to see our marriage in the same way. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. We have an unbelievable opportunity in our marriage. Whether you realize it or not, your marriage communicates a message. And this isn't just for people like me or Eric who are in full-time vocational ministry. We're not the only ones that are supposed to have a great marriage. If you are a follower of Christ, you have an opportunity to have a, mess, a marriage that communicates a message to the world. And, and it does have a message, whether you realize it or not. But I want you to be intentional about thinking through what that message is. I thought about, like, what, what would it look like if we were just so humble in the way that we lived? What would it look like, you know, if you were with your spouse, incredibly humble, if you were somebody who... Uh, asked for forgiveness and granted forgiveness, who did not just look at them as a problem, but dealt with your own issues? What would it look like for you to be candid and honest when you struggle to be real with others and tell others how you work through your challenges? What would it look like if, if we were really different than the pattern of the world? We ought to be the most humble people around. And married people have more opportunities for humility and forgiveness than any other two people I know. And so be humble. Whether you are humble or not, it will communicate something to the world. And when people ask, how are you humble? You tell them about Jesus. You say, I follow Christ. He's made a difference in my life. He's taught me what it looks like to be humble. And you share the gospel through that. And so think through what your marriage communicates. The last thing that I'm working on is to play good offense and good defense in my marriage. So I was studying the book of Nehemiah last year, and uh, Nehemiah is a great story. I wish I had more time to unpack the whole thing. But essentially, Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king in Persia, comes back to Israel, realizes the walls of the city are broken down. That's not good. The walls need to be uh, raised up. They need to be able to fortify the city, protect them. And so he goes back and, long story short, asks for permission to rebuild the walls. He starts to rebuild the walls. As he's rebuilding them, he faces opposition from two groups of people. Faces opposition from God's enemies who say, you're ridiculous. You're wasting your time. What are you doing? You're going to lose anyway. Your God is not a real God. You're just going to fail like you did in the past over and over. And then he also faces opposition from God's own people who tell him, you're just going to fail. This is a waste of time. We lost the war. God cannot protect us. And Nehemiah says that that is not going to happen. We are on 
Uh, we are God's people, and my job is to rebuild those walls. And so he gets a group of people, and they start to rebuild the walls. They rebuild them in, I think, 54 days. I can't remember what the exact number is, a ridiculously no, low number. But in the process, he talks about the type of people that are working on the wall and the jobs they have. And he says there's two types of people that are working with them to rebuild God's walls. There are some group of people who are on the outside who are facing the opposition. They've got weapons and they're taking care of the enemies. They're essentially protecting the wall from the outsider. There's another group of people who are the ones who are the bricklayers who are rebuilding the wall. They're not focused on the enemies. They're working on rebuilding the wall. And so I read this in, in uh, Nehemiah 4, 16 through 17. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction, these guys building the wall, half had spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail, the ones that are protecting. The leaders stood behind the house of Judah who were building on the wall. But there's a group here, those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that they labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. These are like the Navy SEALs of rebuilding the wall. Okay, some can only handle defending, some can only handle building, but there are some who were so heavily burdened that literally would work with one hand and defend with the other. And, and in that, just a cool moment, I thought that, that's what marriage is like. We've got to be people who don't just defend against the enemy, or we don't just get to be people who isolate and get to work on our marriage. We, we live in the real world. Okay, where attacks will come against us. I've got to, uh, when I'm like defending our marriage, that means I resolve conflict. It means I deal with stresses at work. It means I deal with financial challenges that the world might throw on me. It might be infertility. That, that's not your fault if you were walking through infertility. It's challenges from the world where we've got to defend against the lies. And then I've got to do all kinds of things to be building my marriage. I've got to date my wife. I've got to spend time with her. I've got to spend time with Jesus. And if you want to know how to really grow your marriage, the best thing you can do is to work on your relationship with Christ. And I can't be just doing one thing or the other. I've got to be doing both of those things at all times. I've got to work on my relationship with Christ, proactively date my spouse, and I've got to defend against conflict and challenges from the world. And the, the picture I thought of, it's like a foosball player. Or since we're in World Cup, it's like the World Cup. Those guys don't just play defense or offense. They do everything. They're defending. They're playing offense. They're always working. And so we've got to people who are, be people who are always working on our marriages. Last thought here, and then uh, hopefully leave you with a good challenge. So th those are my four things. Okay, deal with my selfishness. Live with my wife in an understanding way. Third is... Um, uh, make my marriage my message. And so thinking through, what does my marriage look like to the world? What can I do to, to give a, uh, a right picture of marriage? And then the fourth is to play good offense and play good defense. Some of you in this room might say, I, I don't even know where to begin right now. Okay, our marriage is a mess. I, I can't even think of one thing. Okay, if that's your story, one, I want you to know that you are in the right place. Okay, the church should be the place where God's people can come and get help. And so there will be a team up here in the front, a team in the back. When we leave this morning, if you feel like you're such a mess, 
uh, a quick, you know, our conversation on Sunday is not going to help. There's staff and elders here who would love to help you. If you are struggling, the church should be the place where you can come to get help in your marriage. For the rest of you, wherever you are, what are your four things? What is your one thing? What are your three things? Don't, uh, you'd be ashamed to walk away this morning and go, that was good. That guy told a couple good stories, and I'm glad he's working on his marriage. What are you going to do? One of my favorite passages in the Bible is James 1, through 25. It says, uh, the man goes and looks at himself in a mirror, sees what he looks like, and then he walks away and he forgets what he looks like. What I think that communicates is that there's times we hear a message and we go, yeah, that's helpful. I should do that. And you walk away and a few minutes later, you forget what it is. And so if you're married, maybe you got a really good conversation tonight. What are some ways that you can work on your walk with Christ, work on your marriage? And then if the church can help you, we want to. Okay. Last thought and then uh, praise and uh, ministry teams can come forward this time. Let me tell you why I think this really matters. Okay, for me, I've got four boys who are 14, 14, 11, and 9. Okay, this matters to me because they're going to get their picture of marriage more from their mom and dad than anybody else in the world. Okay, they're going to see it in Friends. They're going to see it on TV. They're going to see it in the show Modern Family. They're going to see it all over the place. But the best picture they're going to get is from the way that their dad loves their mom and the way that their mom loves their dad. And so for those of you who are married, who have kids, who want to have kids, this matters. Okay, it would be a shame if I get to the end of my days and my kids don't want to follow Jesus and don't want to have a marriage like their mom and dad. This stuff matters. So I'd love to pray for you and pray that God would grow and use your marriages and protect you. Uh, if you are uh, headed in a relationship with somebody who you shouldn't marry, that God would protect you in that. So, God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the body of Christ, for your church. Thank you for this church and the way that they want to focus on uh, raising families, building families, helping families, restoring families to be all that you want them to be. God, I pray for those in here today who just feel hopeless and don't know what to do. God, I pray that you would give them the courage to take some steps pray that you'd give them wisdom and discernment through your word to know what the best step might be. pray you'd help them to be humble and ask for help if they need it. And for those who are doing great, God, I pray that you would give them courage to continue to do the things that you want them to do. God, help us to be different within the body of Christ, to honor you in the way that we love one another. I pray for those who long to be married. God, that you would be uh, in this moment raising them up to be a great husband or a great wife. I pray for their future spouse as well. I pray, God, that you would keep them pure. I pray you'd give them the right picture of what you want in marriage. And God, thank you that we are never, ever, ever on our own, that your word guides us and leads us. Your spirit guides us and leads us. God, you give us the body of Christ to encourage us and to help us. And so we thank you for that. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray.